Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Happy Independence Day. And thanks for listening to this special Best of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome to the second hour of this Best of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on listener-supported Faith Radio. I'm Carmen's producer, Paul Perot. Happy Independence Day, which is coming up this weekend. Hopefully you're getting ready for a great holiday weekend. And as you get ready to celebrate our nation's founding, there are some who say the U.S. was founded as a Christian nation, solely on the Bible. And there are others who say our founding was very non-religious, based more on the European Enlightenment. The reality is it's somewhere in the middle. Both had a profound influence. When it comes to how Christian thought influenced our nation's founding and development, there is a book out there by Robert Morgan called The 100 Bible Verses That Made America, Defining Moments That Shaped Our Enduring Foundation of Faith. We have an abundant supply of copies to give away, and if you'd like to get one, visit our website, MyFaithRadio.com, and request one of the copies we have. Again, visit MyFaithRadio.com. Getting back to our nation and the values that founded it, coming up next, we're going to revisit a conversation Carmen had with Alan Crippen, who is the executive director of the Faith and Liberty Initiative for the American Bible Society. Recently, the American Bible Society opened up the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center on Independence Mall in Philadelphia. The Faith and Liberty Discovery Center is an interactive learning museum that highlights the values that were part of our nation's founding and development through our country's history. We'll get to that conversation in one minute as this Best of Mornings with Carmen continues here on listener-supported Faith Radio. fun to welcome back Alan Crippen. You um, hopefully remember our prior conversation with him. He's the executive director of the Faith and Liberty Initiative at the American Bible Society in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he's here to talk with us today about the opening of the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center. Alan, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. It's great to be back with you. All right. So for folks who might have missed our prior conversation, um, the American Bible Society thought it'd be a great idea, right, to to do something that would really invite people into a conversation discovering America's past and its relevance to the present. Um, talk with us about this project, the Faith and Liberty Initiative, and then specifically the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center. Sure. I'll start with American Bible Society. It is a 205-year-old organization that was founded by the American founders to ensure that every American family had a copy of the scriptures available. And I think it's interesting that it was founded by founders. John Jay uh, was one of its early presidents, Elias Udenow, um, Richard Varick, who was a Federalist and mayor of New York, um, John Quincy Adams, Francis Scott Key, uh, John Marshall, a number of American heroes were involved with the Bible Society. 
they, of course, had risked their, their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor in a revolution, wanting to perpetuate um, a republic and knowing that a republic was predicated upon virtue, thought, well, a source of virtue is the Bible, right? So, so in addition to its, um, its, its spiritual value, its eternal verites, its, its, its um, uh, you know, talk of the gospel, it, it also has this civic benefit of cultivating the virtues necessary to su- sustain a republic. And thus, American Bible Society. So fast forward 205 years, we live in a completely different culture. Uh, we live in a culture that no longer reveres the Bible as a good book. Um, it's 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 suffered reputation. It's considered by many to be a a source of um, hatred and outdated mores and uh, a book about um, you know just things that are irrelevant. And so the Bible Society, wanting to adjust to the times, uh, seeks to initiate a strategy for rebranding the Bible as the good book to, to get people to pick it up, to read it for themselves, to encounter its life-transforming message. So how do we do that in a culture that's um, post-Christian, post-modern, post-literate? Uh, one, one experiment is the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, which is a, a high-tech, uh, immersive, interactive museum that has been built on Independence Mall in Philadelphia to tell the story of the scripture's role in the American experience from the founding right down to the present day. And we do so by highlighting the work and lives of key individuals uh, in, in, the, in the American narrative, some, some well-known, some, some lesser known, who have been inspired by the Bible to become change makers, to advance uh, liberty, to uh, make America a better place. And so that's the backstory for the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, which uh, technically opened on May 1 um, in the midst of, or on the hopefully the tail end of COVID. Uh, and now we're ramping up to, to, to make a little bit of a bigger splash. So I want to talk um, specifically about the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, but I want to circle back to something that you said and have you unpack it a little bit further, because I hear the language of civic virtue um, more frequently now than I have in the past, but I don't always hear the language of civic virtue as tied to um, what I might understand as biblical virtues. So is, is that a conversation that you hear taking place, and would you like to comment on it? I'd certainly love to comment on that. Um, the approach we've taken with the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center is to uh, present six galleries, and each of those galleries are themed uh, on a virtue um, or, or a value. Of faith is one of those <laughs> values or virtues. Liberty, justice, uh, hope, unity, and love. So we've dedicated a, a, a gallery to each of those. And what what we discovered as we were thinking about how to present this, this story is um, these are values that are foundational to the American experience. Um, these are values that have been present f- from the beginning. How do we know that? Because we surveyed founding documents. We surveyed, you know, obviously, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, the Articles of Confederation, various colonial charters, correspondence of American founders, and, and identified these values that are, that are present in these, these documents. So 
not only are they old values, but they're really foundational values to what eventually became the American order, the American Republic. And so we've designed a, a discovery experience. This is not a, it's not a didactic, you know, let us tell, tell you what happened, but it's, it's designed for the visitor to explore for themselves and to discover for themselves that these values have been there, that they are there, and that the source of these values uh, is, is the Bible, both in, its, um, in the Hebrew scriptures as well as the, the Christian scriptures. So we're going to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, Alan Crippen and I are going to continue our conversation um, about the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, which is now open in the heart of Philadelphia. Um, And we're going to talk about, you know, what is the relationship between faith and liberty in the American experience? And what was the influence of the Bible on individuals in key historical and uh, personal moments in the history of our nation? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Alan Crippen, uh, we are talking about the opening of the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center in Philadelphia. You can find it at faithandliberty.org, faithandliberty.org. Let's talk, uh, Alan, about, uh, you know, just some of these stories, right? There is this relationship between faith and liberty in, uh, you know, in the history of our country, and that's really illuminated by individuals who were influenced by the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Can you maybe give us an example of one of those? Certainly. Uh, we, have, we have so many, uh, but, but I'll, I'll start. Our thesis is that faith guides liberty toward justice. So there's a, there's a symbiotic relationship between faith and liberty. I think this is, uh, this is really not a common conception. Most, most modern people think of liberty as basically the freedom to do whatever you want, as long as you don't hurt anybody. And that's more of a libertarian understanding of liberty. That's not really a a Judaic and Christian understanding of liberty or biblical understanding of liberty. Liberty is the freedom to do that which is right. Liberty is the freedom to to love your your neighbor as yourself. Uh, So, you know, in 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 the design of the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, we actually start with the story of William Penn. William Penn was the founder of Pennsylvania, uh, William Penn was animated by his faith. He was a religious um, dissident in England, uh, an Anglican turned Quaker, and he was persecuted for his faith. He was jailed uh, no less than seven times for his faith. Um, he wanted. He, he became in that in that process committed to this notion of liberty of conscience, what we would call religious liberty today. He was also committed uh, to the biblical and theological virtue of love love of God, love of neighbor. Um, he was a political theorist and theorized a society, drafted a constitution uh, to create a free society in the new world that we now call Pennsylvania. And he was able to get that charter because he was pretty highly placed. He was from an affluent uh, and influential family and basically leveraged that uh, influence to get a, a land grant from King Charles the, the second and thus Pennsylvania was born. So uh, Penn, like, is a contemporary of John Locke. They actually were at Oxford at the same time. He's a contemporary of James Harrington and Algernon Sidney and all these sort of political philosophers. But unlike them, right, he's not only theorizing about politics, 
but he's experimenting in it. And he's experimenting in it from an overtly Christian uh, and biblical understanding of the world. So he, you know, he, he understands the, the impact of the fall of man and the nature of man and uh, that man has both human dignity and yet is, yet is capable of, you know, things of great depravity. He'd seen it, right? So, so he um, creates Pennsylvania, which becomes the first a government in the world to make religious liberty permanent and irrevocable. And again, he's motivated by his faith to do this. So this, this, this free place, this, the freest place for religious liberty in the world is theorized by a, by a Christian political philosopher. And, that, and that's just one example of how faith guides liberty toward justice. And my guess is many of the residents of Pennsylvania <clears throat> don't know who William Penn was, or if they do, they don't know those things about him. And that's one of the, I think, the real values uh, that you guys are bringing forward through the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center. And I really do want to encourage our listeners, check it out online, faithandliberty.org. There's cool stuff you can download. There's, you know, there's an app. You can obviously visit the Faith and Discovery, Faith and Liberty Discovery Center in Philadelphia when you're in the area. Um, But there's a ton of stuff online as well. And I I really appreciate that. I want to direct people to those resources online. I feel like there's a lot of conversation in the country um, right now, Alan, about the history of America and, you know, who gets to tell it and how it's told and how it's remembered. And um, you, I, I like the personal exploration part of what you're doing. So let's highlight that again. When somebody comes to uh, the um, the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center. They're gonna experience. They're gonna explore things for themselves. They're gonna come to their own understanding of those things. It's and and I really I appreciate that approach. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. You know, as I said earlier, our approach is not didactic, right? It's not you know sit down and let us tell you tell you what happened. It's it's much more immersive and interactive and and based on really a Socratic method of of learning. So we want to um, posit the questions and um, help the visitor explore those questions uh, in, in the midst of the content. We've done that through some um, highly immersive and interactive uh, technology. Uh, our signature technology for the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center is called the interactive lamp. So each visitor, when they come, they you know, pay their their mission uh, for their ticket, and they're issued the interactive lamp. And what the interactive lamp does, it's really an artificial intelligence device that allows the visitor uh, to interact with some of the the exhibits, but also to collect information that is of interest to them. And they do so by touching an illuminated bullseye that's uh, near near the exhibit they're looking at. Uh, that lamp lights up, it vibrates, and it and it gathers that information and and customizes it for a personal portal that the visitor can access through the, their source code at the at, after the experience. So they can walk through the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center, take in whatever they want, uh, explore whatever they want, and then post experience, go back to their home or their hotel room or. Uh, on their laptop or desktop or iPhone and revisit the content and the questions that the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center um, poses. So uh, that's, I, I think, the this, this, this signature technology that sets us apart from certainly any other museum in Philadelphia, but um, many museums in the world. 
Yeah, it's really cool. It's a way to take the experience with you, um, to take it home, and to be able to continue to explore it and unpack it and dig deeper and, you know, uh, re-engage, right? Because I don't necessarily always learn it the first time through, and, uh, right. and, and going back and covering the material again is so helpful. All right. Exactly. What else do you want us to know? What else do you want us to know to whet our appetite to come and visit with you? Um, this is a really, really exciting launch, and we 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 are celebrating it with you. Um, and just want to give you the opportunity to invite people to join us. Thank you. I, well, I'd like to say that you know we built this for all people, for all faiths, or, or people with no faith to just uh, come and explore the questions and and decide for yourself. Uh, it, it's, you know, we're in this, the metropolis of the American founding, but, but the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center is about more than the founding, right? It, it, it's about the American experience right down to the present. And I, as I think about, you know, the, the issues that our country faces today, particularly uh, the, the issues on um, race and history, I think the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center is opening at the right time because it, it offers a historical lens to our past, a past that's not pretty, right? We're, we're, we're honest about about that past. But I think there are some lessons there. There's some applications there that the visitor can apply to the present. And maybe, um, maybe we can help, you know, find our way, particularly if we, if we unite around these values, right, that are foundational. Uh, I think particularly the value of love, love of neighbor. Um, I, I think we can find our way and, and, and work through these uh, troubled times that our country uh, faces. Alan, as always, thank you for joining us. Um, I love this project. You guys need to go and at least visit online, faithandliberty.org. And then, you know, let's all make plans to go and uh, visit Philadelphia and visit uh, the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center. Um, Alan will be there to greet us, and that will be fun as well. Alan, thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. It's been a delight Absolutely. to be on the show today. It's always, it's always a delight. All right, that's Alan Crippen. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Well, again, thanks for listening to this Best of Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio for this Friday as we head into the 4th of July holiday weekend. Carmen is celebrating with her family, and she'll be back with a new show on Tuesday. So today and Monday, we're looking back at some of the favorite conversations on Mornings with Carmen over the last several months. Now, recently, the Supreme Court ruled in a challenge to the constitutionality of the Affordable Health Care Act, or Obamacare. This legislation enacted under former President Obama back in 2010 sought to expand health care coverage for more Americans, but did so in ways many oppose for a variety of reasons. And while the court again upheld Obamacare, this time on technical grounds that those who filed the suit had no standing in the case, the debate on how to make health care affordable and accessible still goes on. Health care costs continue to rise at a rate higher than inflation. Plus, more health care decisions are made without the patient being the primary decider. Do we do a more centralized, more government-run form of health care like Canada or the UK? Do we go completely laissez-faire free market and get government completely out? Is there another way? Last hour, we heard from one of our favorites, Jim Dennison, and he has a longtime friend, Todd Furness, who has worked in the healthcare field for many years at various levels and positions. He has thought long and hard about this problem and offers his ideas in a book called The 60% Solution. Carmen talked with him back in May. We'll hear that conversation again in about five minutes on this Best of Mornings with Carmen here on listener-supported Faith Radio.
This is Max Locato. The anxious heart says, there's trouble out there, so you don't sleep well. You don't laugh often. Misfortune lurks. It's just a matter of time. As a result, you're anxious. How can this be? Our cars are safer than ever. We regulate food and water and electricity, yet if worry were an Olympic event, we'd win the gold medal. Well, keep in mind that anxiety is not a sin, it's an emotion. It can, however, lead to sinful behavior. And when we numb our fears with six-packs or food binges, when we peddle our fears to anyone who'll buy them, we're sinning. Jesus gave this word, be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with the anxieties of life. God made you for more than a life of angst and mind-splitting worry. He has a new chapter for your life, and he is ready to write it. This is Max Locato. Joining me now, Todd Furness, author of The 60% Solution. You can find it at the 60%solution.com. Spell all the words out, The 60% Solution. Todd, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me, Carmen. I'm very excited to be here. All right. Well, we have a mutual friend, um, Jim Dennison, who said uh, that I needed to talk to you. And after reading this, I thought, yeah, no doubt. So let's um, let's talk about why you have a passion and an interest in a total reform of healthcare and healthcare systems in America. And and then I want to ask you the question, are we even allowed to talk like that? <laughs> well, thank you for the reference to Jim Dennison, who is just my hero. He's such a fantastic gentleman and a scholar and a theologian. He's a brilliant guy and it's a delight to work for them. Just for full disclosure, I'm on his board of directors and it's been an amazing honor to serve him. Um, I, I'm passionate about healthcare because I I like to say that I've touched the industry from virtually every angle, and I've developed what I would call a worm's eye view of the industry, meaning kind of from the inside out. And I've seen just how much we have these passionate, mission-driven healthcare professionals and how hamstrung they are in their ability to actually deliver healthcare or how much risk they run when they try and do so. You know, I started this journey, unfortunately, with a, a sad and tragic plane crash with my mom and my dad uh, back when I was 17 years old and and uh, really started being very, very intimately involved with healthcare at that point in time and have been in and around it ever since, ranging from serving in, an, in the intellectual property and intellectual and uh, information technology areas all the way out to running hospitals and trying to clean up big messes. So I've been involved in, uh, in many angles of it. And even now, we're still involved in a bunch of claims processing issues that are unnecessarily complicated and, and uh, unhelpful. So I'd really like to see us return to a position where people actually take more enjoyment and more responsibility out of their own and serving their own health care and helping doctors and nurses be able to provide that care. Your own... Um... Your own story related to, you know, the experience of your parents and particularly your mom is, you know, I think the heart hook for a lot of people in this conversation. And so, you know, let me just say that uh, Todd lost his dad in a Southern Airways Flight 242 crash in 1977, and uh, and that crash resulted in a lengthy and 
um, really lifelong physical struggle for Todd's mom. And so there's a there's a heart story in all of this as well. The book is The 60% Solution. Um, you um, you stray from what we might call a traditional approach to, you know, what kind of reforms our healthcare system needs. And you really do talk about, you know, the synergy between consumerism and compassionate care. Uh, talk about that as like it's kind of a, a, a necessary approach in the days in which we live. Like there has to be a motivation for me as a consumer to want to make this happen. Well, thank you for seeing that in the book. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that that spoke to you because in my view, this, this relationship between the caregiver and the patient has been interrupted by government and by insurance companies. And let's just assume for the moment that everybody is well-meaning in what they're intending to do and you don't cast any aspersions on their ambitions or their goals uh, necessarily. But let's just assume that everybody's trying to do the right thing. Even if that's the case, what happens is there are unintended consequences that occur when somebody else is paying for your health care. So let's imagine you go in and you go to the doctor. First question you ought to be asking is not what's your copay and not what's your deductible, but who does your doctor work for? I mean, I'm, that's, I'm not being silly about that. I'm genuinely asking who does your doctor work for? Does the doctor work for a clinic that's independent? Does the doctor work for a clinic that's linked to, to a hospital? Does the doctor work for the insurance company by virtue of their payment mechanisms? And what's happened recently that's even you know more riddled with conflicts of interest is, does your doctor actually work for the insurance company because they're an employee of the insurance company? As a case in point, United Healthcare is, in its umbrella organization now employs over 50,000 physicians. So I think there's a legit, the first question you have to ask is, you know, who, who, who does the doctor work for and how will that inform or influence the advice that I'm getting from the doctor as my caregiver to me as the patient? Now, if you, what you notice is that if all of a sudden <clears throat> that patient is paying for that doctor's visit or for that care directly, then everything changes. The information flow changes, the education flow changes, the longitudinal data relationship changes, the confidence and trust that the patient has in the doctor changes, all those things inert to the benefit of the patient-physician relationship. Yeah, and I, so I'm gonna guess that my doctor works for the hospital that is a part of the university that bears the name of, right? I mean, it's, but I could be wrong. And so I think that's a, a really interesting and provocative um, question, and I'm going to ask. Uh, and, you know, it's not like we just have one doctor, right? You know, we have a primary care physician, and then that person often refers us to other people for other things. I have to keep asking the question. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so one of the things that's happening right now, with, and I'm just going to use United, not that they're a bad company, I'm just pointing it out because they've got economic interests that drive them in this direction, is United is now saying, we're going to close our network to new doctors. Then they're saying, we're going to reduce the reimbursements we pay to doctors currently in our network. <clears throat> in our network. And the reason they're doing that is because they're driving traffic back to their own employed physicians, who also then will control all the referrals inside of that group. So 
What happens then is there are economic interests that have accumulated in United Healthcare that say we're going to drive costs and payments in a different direction that has nothing to do with the care of the patient. All it, all it does is it, it drives the profitability of United Healthcare, a publicly traded company. All right, so we're um, we're talking with Todd Furness. The book is the sixty percent solution. You can find it at the sixty percent solution dot com. Todd is uh, is saying, look, each and every one of us uh, needs to be financially capable. We need to be educated, and we need to be engaged. We're going to um, talk about the systems view that Todd takes in the book. We're going to talk about the five interconnected components of the 60% solution. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Todd Furness, we're talking about the 60% solution. You can find it at rethinking.com. Healthcare, lots of really good information um, at that site. All right, Todd, talk about you know the systems view. Like I think of you know the healthcare systems, but I'm not sure I thought of the healthcare system in the way that you um, that you kind of unpack it for us. Thank you. So one of the things that's happened in lots of industries, and healthcare is no exception, is that everybody becomes so focused on their particular area of concern that they drive down deep into it and they lose perspective on the way that it, it interoperates with other components of the healthcare industry. So the healthcare industry operates as a system in a way. And so the question is, how do you look at what I would call the major muscle groups uh, in, the, in that system to really make it impactful change? So the first thing we do is we say, look, healthcare right now is reactive in nature. You only go to the doctor when you have a problem. You only go to the hospital when you have a problem. And the doctors are all trained to fix problems. And so we need to reorient that. That that piece of it is not a new message to say, look, we need to move towards more preventative care and wellness. That's a, a time-honored message. But the way we engage with our primary care physicians needs to change. We need to create what I call longitudinal databases. In other words, collect data over time in the office of your primary care physician so that you can then um, not only pay for that directly and get the information associated with it, but also have that doctor understand you. Frequently, we go to doctors and we have three to six minutes with that physician. They don't know your name. They've never seen you before. You're in and out and, you get, and the insurance company pays for it. So that's, we need to change that model and have a, a, primary, a good relationship with our primary care physician. The second thing is we, our systems don't work. So accounting and IT don't work together. They're incompatible. They're frequently interoperable and not interoperable with other systems. And that allows the third thing, which is hidden pricing. Insurance companies don't pay a particular price when you go to the hospital. Most people don't realize that. What they do is they pay something called a percentage of gross bill charges. So that encourages the hospital to throw everything they can on the bill. And then the insurance company pays a percentage of that bill. So let's call it 40% of the bill. So there's and so there's no real incentive for the hospital to focus on reducing costs. To the contrary, they're focused on increasing the costs. The fourth thing is we have uh, under President Bush, uh, George W. Bush, he implemented something called health savings accounts. And these are tax advantaged accounts that allow people to save money and use them for health care costs in a way that are very attractive. So you can actually build value and build uh, a, a reserve of wealth there. And but, but we're limited in what we can use it for. And there's no correlation between your health savings 
savings account and your deductible. So we could we should be able to fix that so that we can change and reduce the cost of monthly premiums. And the last thing is just what I call hyper-regulation. Everything from the intervention of government into the doctor's visit to the way that we actually train and educate nurses and physicians is unimaginably regulated, and we need to cut some of that out. There's a way to think about this, Carmen, if you would. Um, most people really have a tough time. We're using these big numbers, and they don't really realize what they mean. A billion dollars, just to put it more in things we could better understand, is earning $1 million for each of a 1,000 years. So when somebody says it's a billion dollars, that's not a small number, and we throw it around like it's inconsequential. The, virtually every study has said that there's at least a quarter of a trillion dollars worth of savings we could produce in this country if we just solve some of these problems. And that's before you look at the administrative issues. I, I believe it's, it's more than that. It could be as much as $350 billion. So if we fix this, we could really dramatically reduce, reduce care for everyone and make it far more accessible for everyone. Some people are always advantaged by leaving things broken. Like, right, your, your desire to fix this, um, I share. And I, um, I, share this, I share a similar desire uh, about rethinking education in the United States of America. Um, and so, and immigration. Like, I, have, I, am, I am a big systems thinker when it comes to what's broken. I also recognize that immediately when we start talking about things like this, there are any number of individuals and institutions um, who are benefited by keeping it broken. So talk about um, sort of what's required by each of us and all of us to move this conversation forward in the culture. Well, you, first of all, that's a very insightful observation you have. There are people with, who are economic stakeholders in, this, in the existing model. And the, the good news is that there will be economic stakeholders in any model. And so when we change the model, all we're doing is changing potentially the stakeholders. It doesn't mean that there won't be an economic benefit that arises out of it. And, and everybody wins if we have a more efficient healthcare system um, in, because the, the, the entire economy should grow and people should be more self-reliant and, and more productive. Everything should be better. We should bring joy to the world, hopefully, through this. So in order for people to change it, they've got to be active themselves. They've got to take personal responsibility and recognize that they, as an individual, can go be uh, an activist for this conclusion by taking control of their own inter interrelationships with their own physicians and other caregivers. Go to the doctor and say, hey, I'd like to have, I'd like to pay you directly for this. What will it cost? What happens if I change my deductible from you know, $100 or $250 or $500 or $1,000 up to $10,000 and then put more that money that I was going to spend on the deductible into the health savings account that I keep. If they just take some of these little minimum, de minimum steps, these small steps, I think they can have a big impact and they can create a trend. And that's what I'm hoping to see. I'm hoping to see people rise up and say, hey, I want something different. I want more control over my own health care. I want to be personally responsible, and I want government to help me not get in the way. All right. If that sounds um, really interesting and provocative to you, the website is the60percentsolution.com. You can also get there by just typing in rethinking.healthcare. 
Um, Todd, I want healthcare systems that are. Here's my list. After reading your book, I didn't. I didn't have a list beforehand, but now I know what's on my list. I want healthcare systems that are personal, available, affordable, transparent, compassionate, and proactive. What am I missing? And not, gosh, that was fantastic. Not a darn thing. You're spot on. So I want to, um, you know, I don't want to just become more educated about this. I want to, you know, I want to be engaged on this topic. And you've really supplied, um, like, this educational material that's very accessible. I would have guessed that this was a... Uh, this was an area where I would need more than one book to understand the problem and to imagine how I might help, uh, you know, bring about an absolute transformation or reformation in, in healthcare in America. But you've really put it within reach of everybody. So I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. I, I worked really hard on making the message straightforward and also making it intentionally ideologically impure, meaning... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can have purity, but that's going to argue to the detriment of actual, an actual solution. Um, so I'm really grateful that you saw that in the book, and it means that uh, some of my hard work pay, paid off. I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, it's just excellent. Um, all right, so Todd Furness, you you've probably uh, you've probably seen him on you know big fancy outlets uh, and read him in big fancy papers, but he's here today on Mornings with Carmen, and we're very very grateful for that. Uh, rethinking. Dot healthcare is where you can find the 60% solution. That's the name of the book, the 60% solution. And if you type out all those words, the 60% solution.com, you can find tons of really great information about what we talked about today. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Carmen. I'm grateful. Yeah. Give our greetings to our friend, Jim Dennison. Will do. All right. We'll be right back. Well, again, good morning, and we hope you enjoyed this special Best of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio for this Friday before Independence Day. Carmen is out. I'm her producer, Paul Perot. Carmen will be back in on Tuesday. So what plans do you have for the weekend? Do you plan to have a big family get-together, maybe a barbecue, and then in the evening fire off some fireworks? As you think about celebrating our freedoms, hopefully you think also about those who fought to keep us free. And I don't just mean those who died. On Monday, Carmen had a great conversation with Megan Brown. Megan is not just a Bible teacher. She is a wife of a member of the military and serves with Crew Military, which seeks to help service members and their families spiritually. And as we get ready to celebrate this holiday, she offered an interesting insight and a recommendation that really stood out to us. Megan, what do you want listeners to know um, in terms of your own family's experience of the 4th of July and Independence Day? I would just say that um, the the biggest thing that comes to my mind is that they're combat veterans and fireworks are not always the favorite. So I would say that as we approach the 4th of July weekend, there's so many friends of mine, veterans that, um, you know, are are in my head and in my heart this weekend. So know your neighbors. That's that's my PSA. Know your neighbors and and know if fireworks are going to bless them or really be a burden this weekend. Something to think about as we try to love our neighbors well this holiday weekend, especially veterans who live in our neighborhoods. 
Well, we hope you enjoy today's Best of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Remember, all of Carmen's conversations are available at both MyFaithRadio.com and on the Faith Radio app on the Mornings with Carmen show page. And speaking of app, and speaking of the app, as you're heading out this weekend or really any time this summer, remember to bring us along via the free app. That way you don't have to miss Carmen or Susie Larson or Bill Arnold or any of our Faith Radio original shows. Remember also at MyFaithRadio.com, we currently have a generous supply of the book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, Defining Moments That Shaped Our Enduring Foundation of Faith by Robert Morgan. If you'd like a copy, we're giving them away on a first-come, first-served basis. But like I said, we have a generous supply, so visit MyFaithRadio.com to request a copy from us. It's our gift to you as well as from Word Publishing for this Fourth of July holiday. We have another Best of Mornings with Carmen coming up on Monday. Carmen will return on Tuesday with more great conversations. I'm Paul Perot. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you have a great Fourth of July weekend. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.